Welcome to B2B Marketers on the Mission, a podcast for B2B marketers that helps you to question the conventional, think differently, disrupt your industry, and take your marketing to new heights. Each week, we talk to B2B marketing experts who share inspirational stories, discuss their thoughts on trending topics, and provide useful marketing tips and recommendations. And now, here's your host and co-founder of I'm Like Consulting, Christian Klepp. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the B2B Marketers on the Mission podcast, where you get your weekly dose of B2B marketing insights. This is your host, Christian Klepp, and today I am honored to welcome a guest into the show who is on an important mission. And that mission is to promote better and more globally-minded organizations where diversity is a strength that can thrive alongside innovation. So coming to us from Munich, Germany, Liz Fent, ich würde mal sagen, schönen guten Tag und herzlich willkommen. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Christina. That was perfect. Austrian-German, if I'm not wrong. <laughs> yes, that's right. Austrian-German. Not to be confused with Bavarian-German, but, um, you know, who's counting? <laughs> Liz, I really enjoyed um, our previous discussion. Um, if it were up to me, I would have um, hit record and we would have recorded that as an interview on its own. But um, I'm looking forward to this discussion and I'd just like to give a shout out to Jasmine Matarossian. Thank you so much for the connection. Right. So let's uh, let's get started um, with this conversation. So you're the global chief marketing officer at TUV Sud, and you've been a champion at advocating diversity and innovation in the workplace. So talk to us about why you believe these two factors are so crucial to an organization's success, and why you think they go hand in hand. I think is a the more interesting point. Okay, fantastic. Thank you very much for the the question, Christian. So. Um, I would actually say that it's almost become incidental. So it's not that I went out on a mission, you know, 12, 15 years ago to say I am going to become an advocate for diversity and inclusion, but it's incidental in the way that over the years and due to the fact that I have worked and traveled and lived in so many different countries, I have collected so much life experience and professional experience in those different countries and cultures that it then became you know, integral to my being and the way I turned out to become the leader that I am today. And about uh, 10 years ago, I was offered an opportunity, which I couldn't say no to, and I'm glad I didn't, which was to start up a, a global uh, marketing team. So it was the first of its kind in the group. And I was based at that time in Singapore, having, having previously lived in uh, Hong Kong um, and Taiwan and India, And I think through the fact that I had seen headquarters of this German company through the eyes of somebody who's not based there, I was very sure about the fact that I wanted to lead this team not based out of the headquarter. I did not want to become an ivory tower corporate function head. And it was very important to me that I retained that sense of perspective and that global um, understanding that myself and my team at the time had. So I took the team with me. I was heading up Asia Pacific marketing. And I asked the team members to join me on this mission to go global. And I was uh, lucky enough to have other team members join from Germany. And then I asked um, a number of other people that I felt would be suitable for particular roles in this global marketing team to join me. And, uh, you know, it actually unfolded relatively quickly. And I had a team of approximately 10. We started off in a very humble way, 10 of us from very different backgrounds, um, I think we had about six or seven different nationalities in those 10 people, and we were based in two locations. In fact, yeah, after about one or two years, we were based in four locations, but reporting all directly into myself. Now, 
we already had seen the things that we needed to change. Um, having been in the company, most of us for quite a number of years, and we saw the brand. I'll give you something specific. We saw the brand as um, as a brand not from the eyes of somebody in Germany who's a German, but from the eyes of somebody who's in Asia. You know, and we're talking about um, innovation and, and diversity and how those things go hand in hand. I think it was extremely important that we had different opinions on the table on the same topic. So sticking with the, the um, example of branding, there are about five of us who had very different opinions about where we wanted to take the brand because we'd seen the brand from those different perspectives. And we had some really healthy discussion about, you know, do we want it to take in direction A or B or C? You know, and ultimately we had to figure it out and we then um, concluded that we needed more outreach. So we asked a number of other people and people who had known the brand for 30 years, others who had known the brand for maybe three hours or just three days. And they were all coming at it from different cultural and geographic places. Um, and I think had we not done that and had we not been the global team that we were at the time, we wouldn't have been able to transform the brand into what it is today. So we could see that Tufsu was effectively on a journey to becoming global, but it still held this German heritage a little bit too tight. So we started to transform the way that people saw the, the brand um, to make it more um, you know, reachable to those who are not German. That's quite the story, if I do say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, um, what an amazing accomplishment. And, you know, having had this experience uh, myself in the past, I, I know that it's no small feat to get people, not just in different uh, geographies, but also different cultural and linguistic backgrounds to work together to achieve a common cause, right? Um, we used to call it back in the day, the um, especially with uh, when, when it comes to dealing with uh, headquarters, we called it the Mount Olympus mentality. Right. Uh, yes, yes. And th that's not uh, to be condescending or anything. It's just that sometimes, uh, more often than not, um, uh, people tend to be a bit uh, far removed from what's going on in um, on the ground in other markets, right? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, this is probably going to be an interesting question for you because, you know, um, all these years that you've been um, advocating uh, diversity, um, and innovation in your organization, you've probably come across, I think to put it politely, pushback. <laughs> so what are some of the key barriers um, that you believe um, organizations like yours or any B2B organizations have to address in order to foster environments where diversity and innovation can thrive properly? Mm -hmm. uh, it's an excellent question. Um, I think number one would be unconscious bias. From my experience, there are very few people who go out of their way to form any form of bias. However, everybody, all of us, including myself, have inherent, inherent biases. And I think particularly in the example that I, you know, in this company that has been around for so long, there are a number of people who probably have an inherent bias that the person who leads, for example, global brand couldn't possibly be a non-German, not based in the German headquarters, for example. So I think unconscious bias is definitely a barrier uh, for everybody who's starting out who perhaps um, personifies something that is different from what that other, you know, human thinks that that person should look like or behave like or sound like. Um, and the other thing, the other big barrier I'd say are being is being in the minority. I mean, it, you know, every study you read says it's it's tough. It's genuinely tough. I've been in the minority in 
many places, you know, whether it's traveling across the Gobi Desert, being the only Caucasian woman, whether it's being um, standing on the stage at the management conference, being, you know, one of a very, you know, clear gender minority. And, you know, a barrier in that sense is the fact that you don't, you definitely feel that you need to prove yourself more than anybody else um, who's perhaps not in that same minority. And secondly, there's almost like a cultural codex in the majority where you need to dial into it and behave the way they do and emanate that behavior to be actually culturally accepted. So, you know, if you could perhaps ask me, what would I do to address some of those barriers? I think and it's really important, two areas. Number one is education. I think the more you, you understand ideally and preferably firsthand how somebody else thinks and how they are and they're not against you just because they look or sound or behave in a different manner to you so ideally firsthand education and experience and immersion into a more diverse environment is really the best mechanism to really get people to foster inclusion and diversity um, and I think another area I would go for is uh, psychological safety so for those who are not familiar with that it's it's very, very important. It's basically creating an environment where those who are different or in a minority feel they're in a safe space. And for me as a leader, it's imperative that I am the person moderating and really driving that psychological safety. So for example, psychological safety to be specific would mean that if you're in an environment where some cultures are unlikely to speak up as much as others, you create a different environment whereby you can say, if you have any questions or you have any comments, you can raise those, you can raise those anonymously, you can raise them through the chat function, or you moderate a session such that you ask each person individually for their contribution. Otherwise you'd be in a situation where some speak up a lot, they're the ones who probably feel more familiar, and those who feel that they're in a minority, they don't feel that psychological safety and the ability to speak up. So really it's about coaching and moderating and leading to ensure that that entire experience is inclusive. Those are some incredibly um, insightful and also extremely valuable points. And I think um, at least from my own experience where I've seen um, these solutions being put into, um, you know, being implemented effectively, um, I've seen them uh, in in Singapore and, and and here in Canada as well. And these are things that were advocated by the government. So bo both of these countries are very multicultural. Um, Canada is on its way to becoming quite a multicultural country. And one of the things that they do advocate here is the strength of diversity, right? Yeah. In fact, uh, since 2002, um, there's an official holiday, um, June 27th, I believe it is. It's uh, Canada Multicultural Day, right? And it's basically, um, and you see it on their websites, um, they educate people on the different cultures and what practices and traditions they have, and they observe these holidays, and this is what kind of food they eat, and this is how they prefer to interact with others, right? And, and again, to your point, it's about education and immersion, and it starts also here at a young age, right? So people are educated on the differences, and not that the differences are supposed to be feared or yeah. avoided, they're supposed to be respected and embraced. And yeah. just to understand that we are in a society where people come from different cultures and that's okay. And I think it's very important also, you know, that you honor and respect the traditions you just mentioned. For example, you know, I 
see a lot of leaders say, okay, it's Christmas, but it's not Christmas for everyone. You know, it might be, you know, the, the festival of Diwali, it might be Eid, it might be Chinese New Year. I think it's important that we are very familiar with major cultural traditions and not those just in the Western world, and that those are equally honored and respected. And if there's less education around some of them, that we as leaders sort of are there to impart information and share and really build that knowledge. And as you say, to remove those barriers. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, talk to us about a challenge. Um, and, and again, on the topic of diversity and innovation um, that you and your team have managed to solve in the past 12 months. All right, I'm going I'm to go with innovation. Um, and it was a big one, yeah. So, you know, 10 years in, actually we were eight and a half years in, we were sort of pretty rock solid as a global marketing team. So fast forward, I said, with our humble 10 starting employees, at this point, we've moved on to, you know, there are 30 of us in the, the core team and there are about 140 outside. So in total, we have 170 marketeers, which sounds fantastic, right? But things started to change, right? Customers and their preferences changed. The, um, the transformation of, of, you know, the digitization of transactions, you know, was overtaking us and our capability as a team, you know, and I'd set up this wonderful team structure, you know, everything was hunky-dory, we were sailing in, in a good direction. And then suddenly we realized that, hang on, this might actually not be the direction that we should be sailing in for the next 10 years. So we had this sort of moment of truth of it's time to really sit down and think about where we're going to pivot to. And the big challenge, of course, with any big digital transformation and innovation is, do we have the right resources? Do we have the right people on the bus? And are they sitting on the right seats? So, you know, it was a really tough gig to, to make an entire transformation of the 170 folks. Um, we started with the global team first and gave some really deep thought as to how we're going to future-proof the organization. Um, so I really took down everything we previously had. And we basically went back to the drawing board and considered what the requirements are from our customers, both the internal customers and external. And then we rebuilt and restructured the global marketing team in order to drive a much faster um, digital acceleration than we had in the in the past you know and that meant getting out of the comfort zone hiring people to be honest with you for skill sets that I had not previously come into contact with myself so how are you going to make sure that you hire the right people and ultimately it's about getting started right so I had two people who I thought were going to be suitable for the job and then they were instrumental in hiring the other digital experts that we needed. So we got folks in for pay-per-click, we got search engine optimization, social media, we have a MarTech team now in place, you know, and that has become, and each of those sub-teams then created a strategy 2025, now 26. And that was one part of it, right? And the second part is still part of the challenge is really how you're going to digitize and revolutionize how we do field marketing. Because, you know, it's, it's feasible to upskill some, uh, people and some others, it's going to be a, a tougher gig to really pivot their skill set from more conventional, traditional channels onto digital marketing skill sets. So I think we're on a journey of transformation. I think we're well underway. We're in good progress. But it's really the challenge, I think, in terms of innovation is how we're going to innovate at the same time across the organization and are we going to still be able to keep pace with innovation which we all know is almost faster than how we can innovate as a company that's quite a feat i mean <laughs> and, and 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 certainly this is something um i would say it's not unique uh 
just to your organization alone. I think many organizations have had to grapple with this uh, reality. Um, if they haven't done it, like in the past couple of years, they certainly did it last year when the world went into lockdown, right? Because yeah. um, digitization was um, not just a buzzword, but it was something that was on the top of every organization's agenda. And how do we do it quickly? How do we do it efficiently? How do we do it with the resources that we have? Or to your point, yeah. if we don't have the resources internally, can we find somebody that can support this endeavor externally? Yeah, yeah right? absolutely. So do you believe that diversity and innovation can give marketing a more strategic role in B2B organizations? And if yes, how? I think um, if you have a very diverse and widespread team, you need to be more strategic in the way you act and you behave. Why is that? It's because you need greater guardrails in order to be able to guide people who are not intrinsically in tune with one another because they speak the same language, they're sitting in the same office. So in my opinion, you, you are almost forced to become more strategic and that's a great thing because you need a proper roadmap. You need to be very clear um, in terms of how you communicate. You need to be very clear in the process steps in order to define that strategy and where you're going in order to bring everybody with you to the end goal. So, you know, every year I um, have a strategy presentation. I have an outreach to my team globally and an opportunity for them to ask any questions. And it's really very well laid out and very set out such that it's clear for them to follow because ultimately they then need to transmit that information to the people on their teams. So it's an inadvertent answer to your question. It makes me as a leader more strategic having a highly diverse team. And the other answer to your question is, I think having a more diverse team makes marketing more strategic in the sense that we have far more information at our fingertips than we would have were we to be sitting in one place. So the access to the way that customers behave, the channels they use, the search words that they're typing in. I mean, if I only had, for example, a team based in Germany, they wouldn't have access to that information on WeChat. They wouldn't know, you know, that, that certain forms of social media channels just don't work, for example, in Korea and Japan. So that information that I obtain through this global nature of the team and then literally sitting in different places provides me with information that's invaluable to the CEO and also empowers us to become more strategic as, a, as opposed to a traditional more support function role as a marketing team. You brought up so many um, interesting points, and it was also going back to something we had uh, discussed in a previous conversation. And as I mentioned, it's something that's, um, you know, I've been thinking about for, for quite a while uh, because you were talking about giving marketing that louder voice in the organization, that seat at the table in the upper levels of, of companies or of organizations itself. And to do that, uh, marketing must uh, have or find a way to have that more strategic role. And going back to what you said, um, making the value that, the marketing function provides more visible to the other stakeholders. Definitely. Hey, it's Christian Klepp here. We'll get back to the episode in a second. But first, is your brand struggling to cut through the noise? Are you trying to find more effective ways to reach your target audience and boost sales? Are you trying to pivot your business? If so, book a call with Einblick Consulting. Our experienced consultants will work with you to help your B2B business to succeed and scale. Go to www.imblake.co for more information. Liz, I mean, this is probably the understatement of the year, but you have quite the reputation as a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, you've implemented a lot of firsts throughout your career, um, and you've mentioned some of them already. And it's it was really um, with the aim of bringing about positive change in the workplace. Yeah. So, for example, at your current organization, the Two Suit, you've pioneered the first ever corporate function headquartered outside of Munich that is staffed by a gender and racially diverse team. And the second one is also you co-founded your organization's uh, global women's network, right? So talk to us about what inspired you to implement these changes and what are some of the um, important lessons you've uh, learned along the way? Okay, I think that I have somehow become an agent of change in the organization um, due to the fact that I could see a need. I could see the fact that we had so much potential as an organization that we were not harnessing on. And as I was sitting there from my Asia Pacific marketing perspective, I could see so many things that needed to have been done that no one was actually addressing. That was just an untapped opportunity. And I thought that I'd wanted to do things differently. I obviously could see what my predecessors and various other corporate functions were doing. And I felt that if we were truly going to be successful in marketing, I should harness all of the experience I've had traveling and living in, in different countries and have that global team working with me um, in order to really accelerate and move us forward. And it was a similar situation with the, the women's network. So, you know, having been with the company for so many years, I realized that at the top, there were so very few women. And I think the older you get and the more life experience you have, you start to want to, you know, give back and pay it forward. So, you know, I think after the umpteenth time of standing at the management conference stage, looking around and thinking, my goodness, there's a sea of wonderful men in this room, but there are so very few women. And I started to ask myself, why is that the case? And then I started asking a number of women. They've said that they, they don't feel that they are um, have enough opportunity or don't feel sufficiently empowered or simply just can't see themselves because they see too few role models. And then it came, you know, to, to, to being that I spoke to another few and then we said, OK, you know what? Let's start a women's network, not to build some sort of feminist movement within the organization. On the contrary, we want to be inclusive. It's very important that we you know, create something that is a very positive uh, sign to the organization and brings women together and also harnesses different capabilities. And I wanted to share something that I thought was quite interesting. So you can imagine over the global you know, marketing um, experience over the last 10 years, there's some things that have worked very well. And one thing that I'd like to say is I've, I've built within each of the regions a center of marketing excellence. So we don't just have the global team based in these two locations, but we have six additional centers of marketing excellence. And they are my ears to the ground in the markets. And it's a dialogue. It's not you know, me as headquarters saying, let's do this and you have to just follow. But no, it, they have an equal seat on the table with me and I want to actively listen to what they want to play into the organization. So when we set up the women's network, I thought, you know what, that worked particularly well, let's do that again. So we have a very small core team, there are only three of us. Um, and in each of the regions, we have ambassadors, there are two of them in each of the regions. And we have approximately eight regional, um, local or national centers for the women's network. And those are a wonderful interplay of hub and spoke. Both the marketing and the women's network are actually good similar examples of you know, where one concept has worked and been implemented in a different place. And again, for the women's ambassadors, you know, I speak to them on a regular basis together with my other core team members. And they say to me, listen, Liz, this is what we really need in country X. So you know, some of the concepts and programs you're developing are very nice, but they won't work for us. 
So I've come to a conclusion that you're never going to be able to have one size that fits all. But what is probably going to be workable is an 80-20 way. So 80% of what you're developing is going to work in most of the markets and then 20% localization. And we've allowed that for marketing. We've allowed that for the women's network. And I think that gives people a sense of ownership um, and it respects their local um, requirements and enables them to also have a bit of a legacy for themselves and drive something that they have cr truly created. And now we've got to the point with a marketing organization where some of those local activities are played in, let's say, on a, on a use case or a case study experience exchange, and they're then used by another market. But we're not, as a, as a global team, responsible to drive them. So these initiatives have clearly uh, made some visible progress. Um, you know, all these um, all these achievements have indeed come to fruition, not all at the same time, also depending on different markets, I'm sure. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, on to the next understatement of the year. Um, you have quite the um, adventurous spirit and um, I, I, I guess the German description would, uh, of it would be an, an unruhiger Geist. So talk to us about um, one of these trips that you had that was quite a challenging one and um, how that experience has influenced you personally as a leader in the corporate world. Thank you for asking this, this Christian. And I'm going to talk about something that, you know, some people feel very uncomfortable talking about and it's failure. So um, I was 28 at the time and um, I, it was actually one of my first bigger mountains. So I was attempting to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. I trained for the nine months. I'd done everything right. And I was, I would say, looking back now, overzealous, certainly overambitious and quietly confident, or perhaps actually loudly confident about the fact that, you know what, this is going to be like such a walk in the park. I'll just run up more or less. And I remember starting and not feeling particularly well. So I'd eaten something that upset my stomach two days before I started this trip. Anyway, I thought I'm not going to listen to the inner voice. I'm just going to keep doggedly at it. And I, I walked too fast. And it was my first high altitude mountain. And by day four, I started to feel very ill. And um, it was the morning of the summit. And as I woke up, I knew that I was not going to be able to summit, but I kept trying to push on and push on and push on. And at some point, the guy turned to me and said, listen, Liz, we, we, we will have to leave you back and leave you behind. We're unable to summit with you. You're clearly too unwell. Your eyes are dilated. You know, you are showing some very serious signs of sickness. I'm sorry, but you're going to have to descend. And I think those four hours of descent, and you have to descend very quickly when you're at a high altitude. At that point, I was at about 5,500 meters, um, and I had to descend very quickly. And I think those four hours were probably quite life-changing. You know, that sense of bitter disappointment suddenly got replaced with me thinking, hang on, you know, I didn't actually listen to my body. I didn't actually, you know, think that I wouldn't be able to achieve this. And I didn't even have a game plan for a plan B. And I started sort of reflecting and thinking, you know what, it's probably not just going to be about pushing through or being overly confident. Um, and it certainly gave me a huge sense of being humble. So fast forward, um, I think 15 years, I'm climbing Mont Blanc. I'm a far more experienced climber. I've got all the training behind me and I'm roped to three other people. And um, the person in front of me, fell into a crevasse and not just a small crevasse you know you can imagine it's a 15 meter ice crevasse and I think had I been the 20 year old self that I was I'd have probably got very irritated and you know thought well he's just holding me back 
But because I felt that the group in Kilimanjaro had been so kind to me and they were so kind when they got back, they showed me the photos. They, I felt that, I, you know, I was not losing out because of that. And I've experienced so much failure myself and the, the guide in Mont Blanc said we were unable to take this person. Um, and I was the one who stayed back with him and I summited a couple of days later. And I think that's an important feeling of, you know, you've leadership is not about getting there the fastest it's actually about taking care of the people and making sure that everybody is in the right space and at the right time to you know to achieve what you need to do so it's definitely been a humbling experience I've been on several tours and, and mountain adventures since where I've taken women up mountains who've never climbed before and I always make sure I keep at that person's pace I think doing things too fast and leaving people behind in a professional and a, a climbing sense, is not going to work. That is a truly amazing story. And I think one um, from which we can all draw inspiration from, because I, I believe you touched on a point um, that really resonates with me, because more often than not, and you can you know, you know take your pick, whichever social media platform it is, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of content out there from leaders that are trying to paint this um, image of, um, well, perfection and flawlessness um which i think um which i think is inauthentic right yeah. um but back to your story i think um what you've displayed with uh, your struggles and this experience you had on kilimanjaro and how you learned from that in ex uh, from that experience rather and applied it um to the uh to the trip um, up mont blanc um it's not just learning from your mistakes but you also displayed empathy uh yeah foresight um thinking about your team members that nobody uh, nobody gets left uh, left behind right so that in itself is a uh, uh, truly inspirational and i think every leader should aspire to be like that <laughs> what's um what's a commonly held belief or a status quo uh in your opinion uh when it comes to diversity and innovation that you passionately disagree with and why let's start with the, the, the diversity piece mm. I belief that diversity is either diversity of gender or diversity of sexual orientation and it seems to be limited at that and I think diversity is far far more than the, those two assets or aspects or elements of diversity you think about um, age diversity or you think about um, cultural diversity or more important opinion diversity of opinions so it's, I find it slightly narrow when people always refer to diversity in the LGBTQI piece or the context of gender diversity. And in my opinion, moving on to the topic of innovation, if you really want to drive innovation, you have to be diverse across all of those various aspects. And I absolutely celebrate the fact that I have people in my team who are early 20s and I have people in my team who are late 50s. And I don't think one of those two opinions counts more or less I think, you know, there are a lot of people who consider that people who have just started in, in the, their professional setup are going to have less to contribute. I disagree entirely. I think they have the most incredible fresh pair of eyes that, you know, you and I and many others don't have. Similarly, that sort of writing people off because therefore the X, Y, Z is also not OK. My view is that if you have true diversity, age diversity, cultural diversity, religious diversity, you know, sexual orientation of us, gender, and all of these various aspects, only then do you have this really, truly holistic view on a topic. And ultimately, your end game, I feel, should be building a project team that really reflects all those various aspects. 
you know, we have one team and they do the website um, in our company. We have someone who's mid fifties. We have people who are mid, early twenties. We have every form of religious diversity in that team. And I think that makes the team truly outstanding. And they are, I think, far more willing and interested to learn from each other because they can all contribute something different. And that, you know, it's not homogenous. It's a very heterogeneous setup. And my going back to, I think my, my main point is it shouldn't just be, you know, one type and one element or aspect of diversity. Yeah, I would say that's some pretty sound advice because uh, more often than not, to your point, it, it, it tends to it tends to sway one way or the other. But, um, you know, as you were um, giving your answer and uh, providing your opinion, uh, something else came up, uh, which I thought I'd, I'd like to ask you, because it's one thing to implement uh, diversity and innovation within organizations such as yours. But what would you say... Um, B2B organizations that are of a much uh, smaller size, but also have to deal with teams across different geographies and uh, linguistic and cultural boundaries. Um, do you think that they can apply uh, some of these principles that you've talked about in the past couple of minutes? I definitely think so. I mean, there are various setups. I mean, you mm -hmm. can definitely probably um, insource you know, through agencies that have got diversity. You don't necessarily have to have such a large team yourself that represents all those aspects of diversity. Or you can, for example, reflect diversity if you're doing outreach, let's say customer um, intelligence programs, that you ensure that you don't just pull your data from one specific demographic source and that you can definitely segment your data and ensure that you're targeting any of your activities um, to various um, age groups, target groups, geographies and I think therefore at least the, the information that you're basing your decisions on is truly broad and diverse in the the data points it's collecting from and as I just mentioned the agencies you'd be working with I always look for diversity in age in the agencies and make sure that you know you're also not just having a, you know, an agency based in country x that has one type of person working for it Yes, that's absolutely right that's absolutely right and I think to your point uh, which you brought up earlier on in the conversation, if you want to implement these initiatives and, uh, you know, let's keep them separate, diversity and innovation, um, there has to be a master plan, a, a, a strategy. I mean, I'm, I right to say that, like, so, for example, like, why are you implementing this? Like, how, how does it benefit your organization? How does it benefit the customers? Because the last thing you want to do, and I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, you don't want to just tick that box and say, OK, well, we, we've done it. We've covered that field. We've covered that aspect of it. <laughs> I think that that's the definite topic, right? I mean, that's the elephant mm. in the room in many cases is the yes. you know, pink washing, right? And this yeah. is not a checkbox exercise. I think you've got to be truly authentic in the way you you pursue, you know, diversity and innovation ideally as one. And I think that those two should go absolutely 100% hand in hand. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Okay, and just to wrap up the conversation, you know, a piece of advice that you would give people that are thinking about um advocating uh, diversity and innovation within um, their own organizations. Uh, what is one thing you think that people should start and one thing people should stop? Okay, I'm going to start with the stop, um, which would be to stop seeing diversity and innovation as a, just another corporate thing to execute in one way or another. And nothing against, let's say, centralized uh, projects 
but on programs, but I probably would avoid trying to push it out as some sort of corporate communications theme tied up with HR something or other. I would actually far more think it's a, the better approach to go for um, pilot projects, use cases. And you mentioned absolutely 100% correctly about those, those barriers and thresholds and how we're going to get people across those. And I was thinking in preparation for this today, I think the best thing to do is start small. Um, what we did, for example, when I started the global team to really make sure that there was sort of the inhibitors are gone, you know, this unconscious bias is out of the room. I buddied up one member of the Singapore team with one member of the German team, you know, and they basically got to know each other on a very small scale. I mean, this is small stuff. It's easy to implement. Um, you know, right now, initiative in the company and we are doing some form of meet and, and eat so you have a virtual lunch with somebody from a very different background um, and, and cultural context to your own um, I think another thing I would say is set up small projects you know this could be projects for I don't know a special project once a week or once a month or once a quarter where you're putting together a group of people who don't normally work together um, into one particular project pool to work on an exercise together I think it's really important to pull them out of their day job and actually give them quite a different challenge to solve. And I, believe me, when we've done that, it's always brought fantastic results because people are a, very eager to be in a different environment. They learn a lot. They find it engaging. They find it sort of exciting to. And they also, I think, are in a situation where there's some good, healthy competition between various people within that team. And usually that's where the magic happens. And then that actually has a spill out effect because once they've done that on a smaller scale, they start thinking, hey, that wasn't so bad. You know, let's say if I'm a German speaker primarily to say I'm going to go out there and speak more English. And that was really good. You know, I met that Justine lady from from Spain. I think I'll connect her with up with her again. And the next time those group, that group of people are far more likely to want to go and work in a more diverse project again. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, you know, you push them out of their comfort zone, so to speak. Um, and I think fr friendly competition is always good, as, uh, you know, provided it doesn't get too um, too aggressive because we've seen some of that as well. <laughs> but I think, but I, but I think what you are alluding to, I think, is extremely important, and it's and I think it's worth uh, reiterating because once you push them out of their comfort zone and you bring them together to work on a common project or a common task, more often than not, what happens is you'll start getting uh, team members that are engaged, uh, motivated. Um, they are then challenged or they're given a new challenge, which gives them also something to look forward to and hopefully will um, optimize their performance. Absolutely. Maybe one thing I, I didn't mention is if somebody's not comfortable with moving, for example, to a different place, smaller scale stuff. I mean, we've had people going to, to work in a different country for three months. And even those three months actually immerses them to the point where they, they definitely start changing the way they think. And it, A, do that and B, they start getting to know the people in that country that they've spent the time in. And then they're clearly more likely to advocate for more international, you know, experiences after that. And more often than not, after we've done the three months, it then extends to something else and something else. And in fact, I myself started off by saying, you know what, headquarters Munich, you can send me to Taiwan. Um, I'll just be in Asia for one year, so I won't even bother moving my furniture. I'll just keep it in storage. And 15 years later, I returned to headquarters and my stuff was still in storage. So I had to pull it out about a year ago. Very funny. <laughs> there's, an, um, there's an interesting uh, 
quote that comes to mind just based on what you've uh, been saying in the past couple of minutes. I can't remember who said it, but it basically, and I, I think you can appreciate it being a mountain climber yourself, but it goes something like uh, every once in a while, you have to climb a different summit to view the world from a different perspective. Oh, 100% agree with that. Yeah, yeah, I, I knew you'd appreciate that one. But Liz, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, you know sharing your expertise and experience with the listeners. Uh, please do us the honor of uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and how uh, people out there can uh, get in touch with you. Okay, fantastic. So a little bit about myself. I'll try and keep it short. So sure. I, you probably can hear this. I'm native uh, British. So I come from a multilingual background myself. My father's German. And um, when I was 18, after finishing school, I traveled around Europe um, and then realized that everybody except, you know, the Brits were far more, you know, educated in speaking different languages and having lived all over the place. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to cancel my study plans for the UK. I then moved to Berlin, uh, studied economics and worked for a number of years for ACFA. And I'm passionate about photography. Um, after that, I started uh, with to have sued. I went around the world for a year. I think that's an important thing to mention. I did it single-handedly as a woman. I spent six months in South America and six months in Asia, which culminated in me buying a horse and riding over the Gobi Desert on this horse to Siberia and living with a local Siberian family for a number of weeks, um, only to return to Munich to think, no way, I, I need to get out there again. So that's why they more or less gave me a one-way ticket to Taiwan. And the rest is history. I was there working for Tufsud uh, for 15 years. And I hope I've been one of the people in the company has been instrumental in globalizing and now digitalizing uh, the company. You can get to, to speak to me at any point through LinkedIn. And I love meeting new people. Um, I will take anyone out to coffee who comes and uh, comes to Munich and wants to have a truly German immersion experience. I'm very willing and able to do that. Fantastic. And the rest, as they say, is history, right? <laughs> <laughs> Liz, uh, thank you so much. I mean, as expected, this was an incredibly um, insightful and informative and thought-provoking uh, conversation. So thanks again for your time. Take care, stay safe, and um, talk to you soon. Thank you very much, Christian. It was an absolute pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the B2B Marketers on a Mission podcast. To learn more about what we do here at Einblick, please visit our website at www.imblake.co and be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player.